0: Welcome to the Fuji Love podcast. Today we're talking to Klaus Bo, a freelance photographer from Denmark with a highly impressive body of work that he has produced over the last uh, 16 to 17 years and received numerous awards uh, for his documentaries and personal work. He works with newspapers, NGOs, and also does long-term personal projects on very interesting and fascinating subjects. Let's talk about it. Klaus, welcome to the Fuji Love podcast. Thank you very much, Jens. I'm asking everybody in the beginning, so we understand who you are. Who is Klaus Bo? (laughs) That's a good question. I'm a
1: 51-year-old autodidact, you know, self-made photographer. I used to be a musician. Studied at the Academy of Music, but I, I quit because I wanted to do photography. So I picked up a camera and I started taking pictures. And then I basically learned it all by myself. I never went to any school or any photography courses or anything. I just used my my friends and, and I went to a few photo clubs and, and, and learned st- some stuff there. But basically, I I did it all myself. So I'm 100% organic, self-made photographer.
0: And when you started, you still did uh, analog photography.
1: Yes, I started out in the analog times, and uh, yeah, I've been doing a lot of black and white, doing everything myself, developing the film and the pictures and everything. So uh, yeah, I've been through that uh, era as
0: well. Are you are you missing it, or you're you kind of happy to be in the digital age?
1: Well, if you talk about spending your time in a, in a in a dark room developing your own images i, I miss uh, of course some of the process in it i think it's it's fascinating to be watching your own picture coming out of the out of nothing you know but on the other hand with all the chemistry i'm quite happy that we've gone digital because uh, it's uh, it's quite poisonous the things you use in the dark room so in that way, I, I but I miss. I, sometimes I miss the process. I think I think sometimes uh, things goes a little too fast with the digital uh,
0: systems. Well, you will have a long time in a dark room developing a thousand pictures and selecting the right one. So.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, but you, you also when when it was analog, you were shooting in a different way. You know, you didn't shoot like brrr. many people tend to be shooting like brrr, 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 instead of like concentrating and focusing on the subject and take that one shot. I mean, that needs a lot of uh, concentration, but it's doable. But now you just, oh, it's, it's happening around in this time frame, those 10 milliseconds, I'll just push the buttons, the button and it will I will have the shot, you
0: know, it kind of robs you of a core skill of a photographer. But my experiences in the beginning, when I started shooting, I used to do this, I just spent five hours trying to figure out the right shot out of 500 of the same subject. I don't find that very, uh, not very pleasing.
1: <laughs> you did that with film?
0: No, of course oh, okay. not. I, okay. I never. <laughs> I'm way beyond the film age. I started shooting five years ago. So ah, okay, yeah. So but let's jump into this. So you actually self thought photographer, um, how Looking at what you do today, which we're going to dive into, um, how did you go from being self-taught to have uh, the, all these numerous assignments, personal projects, you do magazine work, etc.? How did this way go?
1: Well, uh, from the very beginning, I, I, I'm i a very curious person. So I decided, and I am I also have this, how do you say, this thing inside of me. I don't know how to explain it correctly in English, but I I, I have. To, I, I was a musician because I wanted to something. I wanted to to, uh, to do something to the people who who were listening to my music. And it's the same thing with my photography. I have this strong urge to to tell stories. I really have to tell stories. I have to get out with my work. So from the very beginning, I decided I have to be, since I didn't have any uh, education, I didn't go to this uh, Danish uh, School of Photojournalism or any other schools with photography which means I get a very my, my, my networking is really bad because when you go to these schools you learn a lot of people from journalists and who, who will have like good positions in, in in at magazines or whatever so they will be your friends and they will hire you but I don't I don't have that uh, entrance or what you can say to the, to the market so I decided to to be visible so from the very beginning uh, of my my photographic career I, I, w- I started doing projects. Like personal projects and spending a lot of time. My first big project was about the drug addicts in Copenhagen, where I spent like one and a half year photographing them. And in the end, I had it all exhibited in a very nice place. Uh, uh, and and that has been my strategy from the very beginning: to be visible, to exhibit, and to do my own stories. Go out and see. Oh, there's a story there. That's interesting because I I want to tell these people's stories. Uh, so I just. Moved. I mean, I really worked and worked and worked on on, on this uh, on these projects. And I have had in the beginning, I had all of my projects uh, exhibited, or I sold them to different magazines and newspapers, just because I wanted to tell the story, but also to be visible, to make people have to know that I'm here.
0: When you say you dedicated one and a half years to, to photographing uh, drug addicts, mm-hmm. uh, where does your drive come from? Do you just decide now the next two years I'm going to spend with this? Is, is it a personal passion or how do you like keep it up?
1: Mm, let's say, uh, basically, uh, if, I, if I hadn't become either a musician or a, a photographer, I wanted to be an anthropologist. So I think I have a basic interest in people uh, and how they live and and um, I don't decide that this project is going to take like one year or two years or three months. I have no idea when I start a project it, it has it, it, it takes the time it does. I mean there's no way to to uh, to, to say that this will only last for one year or something like that. You can't do that. I, I, I finish my projects when I think I have the the, the pictures I need.
0: Okay, so it's, it's a feeling, you know, you're finished and it's ready to actually like show to people and then you just stop with it. Yeah. So you're moving between very interesting fields. I mean, you also if if I check you out on the Internet, I see you doing red carpet stuff. You're doing documentary stuff oh, yeah. you're doing editorial. Um, I'm assuming documentary and social justice subjects are your personal passion, right?
1: Definitely, definitely. But the, the red carpet is the thing that pays for everything.
0: <laughs> okay, so that's the logic behind it. Like yeah. you're doing jobs in order to finance your, your passion projects. Actually.
1: Yeah, those red carpet jobs are really well paid here in Denmark and, and it's uh, you don't work a lot. Let's say my my the project I'm working on now, my personal project, I spend maybe 30 hours a week on it. But I still have to make money on the side. So so those jobs are really even people, they say, oh, that's a shitty job. No, it's not shitty. It's quite easy when you know how to do it and, you know, the people you have to photograph. And it doesn't take a lot of time, but it's well paid. Of course, I do other stuff as well. I do work with NGOs and I, I do portraits for different
0: organizations and stuff like that as well. But my main income is from the red carpet. I see, but NGO work is nothing that that pays at the end of the day, or you're just getting compensated for for your efforts. No, no, it pays.
1: <laughs> I, I I've had some NGOs calling me and say, hey, "Oh, can we go on this? Can you go on this trip? You will have everything paid, and you can sell the pictures yourself afterwards." And I said, "No, it's not possible, unless you tell me that your employee who's going on the same trip is doing this in in their vacation time. Yeah, <laughs> then I will do it in my vacation time as well." <laughs> But, but I, I always used to say, hey, hey, do you, get, uh, do, do you get paid for calling me? Do you get a salary? I mean, someone is paying you for calling me. Oh, yes. Okay. So you just have to explain to me why I shouldn't have any money
0: for my work. That is correct. But well, that's also kind of a sign of the time currently that photographers actually are not getting paid for work.
1: Yeah, Exactly. It's terrible.
0: How do you see the development in, in photojournalism these days? So the old structures break away. There's uh, stuff photographers getting laid off. There's a very restrictive contracts from a photographer point of view. What's your take on that and where do you see this going?
1: Ah, it's a very good question. We've been talking a lot about it here in Denmark as well. Uh I, I, simply i don't have any idea but what I see here there's like a push back to the to a lot of people are starting doing analog photography now here in denmark as well to, to put i think another feeling into to to the to the what they're doing uh, so it's like uh, i think the projects will still be there we have some very strong photographers in denmark and they will still do the projects but uh, of course as we've been talking a lot about is that there's no money in it Anymore because in the old days you could go out, I could go to a trip to Syria and do a series of uh, uh, down there, and I would be 100% sure I could sell it when I came back. It's those things, uh, those days are over, but I have no idea where we end. Uh, it's a very good question. We have some newspapers in Denmark that's like more niche, 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 you say niche. Uh, newspapers and they are actually doing very well because they are um, um, uh, holding on to to their to what they are, you know. Instead of trying to get new readers and stuff and changing the layout and changing the the things in your newspaper all the time, they are trying to hold on to what they stand for, and it actually works. But um, uh, I don't know about the photography, <laughs> the, the press. I'm a press photographer, documentary photographer. Pictures will, are always needed, but everybody is a photographer today. But of course, you know, when you see the difference between some amateur with a, a, a smartphone or a or cheap camera, and then you see a professional who's been working in the, in the business for like 20 years, are, there is a difference.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. The question is, is it is it seen by the viewer? Because what exactly. we're currently lacking is those, like, if you look back to, like, W. Eugene Smith and all these, mm, like, big mm. guys who could work for a month on a subject and yeah. come back with really great conclusive work. Mm. I'm not sure if this is appreciated from the newspaper side and equally from the viewer side. Some people just want to get a quick glimpse on something and they don't really care about the quality. But that depends how you
1: see it. Because I think people, they talk to your subconsciousness, you know? so in that way uh even though the viewer might not be able to tell the difference between two pictures and two images or tell tell the difference between what the picture is doing to them the photograph how, how do their subconsciousness react to those to, to the images the, i'm quite sure that there is a difference because that's what we are able to do we can, we can communicate with with photography we have a we have an idea about why do I take this picture why do I take this picture in this specific way uh, because there's a story over there in the back and that uh, that coincides with the, with the main subject of my image so it's an add-on if I put that thing in as well you know and and people with a mobile phone or, or, or people who are not trained they don't see that and uh, not that as quick as professional photographers. Do they do so i think there will still be a difference but i'm not sure that the editors are actually thinking about this anymore
0: well i, I think sometimes it's also more of a financial consideration as people like send pictures in and they want to get published as opposed to people who actually dedicate weeks and days of their life to, to capture something
1: but for me if you want to talk a bit about my big project my dead and alive project um it's uh, i have decided to to work it around the other way around what you say so i've decided to make the project first i have a and then I'm, I'm i'm out there for the money
0: after do you get the money now i mean let's talk about the dead and alive project now you're a few years into this project i think this runs uh, for about eight years if i'm correct yeah so do you now after eight years investing your own time and money are you getting the response you're expecting
1: <laughs> I'm getting the response I'm expecting, but I'm not getting the money. <laughs> <laughs> let me calculate how much this has costed me. If you have a
0: second. Oh, sorry, that was an email. Yeah, why, why you looked that up? Let me explain it. So you the last eight yeah. years, you actually went all over the globe into different cultures and different regions, and you documented the, 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 the death rituals of different yes. cultures. And if we think about this, this requires you to travel for months and and, and potentially even years and spend a lot of time in places. So I'm actually interested in how much you personally invested into this. Well,
1: uh, everything. I sold my uh, summer house. I've sold my car. I just recently sold all my Leica gear, which was like over 10,000 euros worth. So basically, um, um, I sold everything. (laughs) And I have spent, to be quite precise, I've spent 49,000 euros on this project at the moment. Wow, and
0: that over the course of the last eight years?
1: Yeah, but of this money I've gotten, let's see, around, I just have to convert this, convert this. So I've gotten around uh, 13,000 euros back, so it's like uh, 36,000 euros
0: I have out there now is that uh, the price for your passion or do you think this will come back to you in some way or form
1: uh, I definitely hope it will come back but I don't see it like that I, I'm I'm a, a very adventurous guy and I love traveling so so for me it's a, uh, I have combined this passion with the passion for photography and uh, and 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 then I found this subject about death rituals which actually contains everything you have death you have happiness you have uh, uh, sorrow, uh, you have. I mean, all feelings, all emotions are, are exist in that time when you take when when people are getting buried, or I when mean, you have these rituals. So, I combined those two things, and I come and and I think for me it's like I, I don't. I'm not sure I get my money back, but it has definitely been worth it, no matter what. I don't regret anything.
0: I, I fully understand you because it's actually been enriching you. I, I I share the mind state of rather paying something on top and having a great experience than saving a buck and and not doing it. Mm, exactly. Well, let's let's let me let me get into this project. I want to know at first how do you co- did you come up with being fascinated in the death rituals? It's not it's not the most obvious subject when you look for a documentary <laughs> project. So how how did that start? Oh, well,
1: it started. All the way back in 2002, I was doing a story about the area I'm living in because they were, how do you say, uh, remaking this area. What do you say? Uh, it was a very old area of Copenhagen, the cheapest place you could live in. And then they started to renew it. How do you say renew when it's buildings and stuff like that?
0: Uh, renovation, they renovated Yeah, the
1: they started to renovate the whole area. Uh, and. And I wanted to do a project about this uh, change of time in this area. And then suddenly I, I was photographing in a mosque here in Copenhagen and uh, because of this project. And there was going to be a funeral uh, ceremony. This old man was going to be sent back home to Pakistan. But there was this ceremony that was going to be held in the mosque here in Copenhagen. And I followed the, the ceremony. And it was a public uh, event because that's what an uh, uh, Islamic funeral is and uh, there was a lot of people he was very people like this old man so so there was a lot of people in the mosque and in all this it was a crazy 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 I, I caught a picture with a little guy maybe eight or ten years old uh, looking at this old man in the coffin and watching him and just i could see he was quite curious about this and for me it was the first time i saw a dead person myself so uh, but then uh, after that i took that shot i was i was i started thinking about it that there's something here because it's a huge taboo in our part of the world the death and the death rituals and to talk about it and, and just to realize we're not going to be here forever i mean so i started thinking about it at that time and i spent some years thinking about it and then in 2007 i did a picture in greenland uh, of a graveyard up there and and i thought wow that's really interesting i was there to 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 photograph the queen, but she couldn't land north of the polar, so Arctic Circle, and then I went to the cemetery and thought, well, let's see what's happening up there, and I got this amazing shot from there, and then I started really thinking, this is there's something in this, uh, and I, I I made a group of uh, another photographer, the two journalists and ethnologists and different kinds of people, but we couldn't raise any money, so in the end, I I I, I did it myself, but that was the beginning. And, and I had this group and we worked for like one year, had meetings and meetings and meetings, but then I am I'm not. Uh, I got tired from, from all these meetings. I mean, we, had, we needed to see some pictures. So I decided to go to Haiti to see if I could photograph this thing. i had been to Haiti before and I, I know if, if, if there's a place in the world where death is very close up front, it's in Haiti. So I went there and I, I did my first trip there. I spent two and a half months. Working around death in, in in many different ways in in Haiti, and it was really really interesting. And I came back, and I had nice pictures, and I could see that there was something in it. My colleagues here in Denmark, they a lot of them were telling me, "No, why 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 do you want to do that? There's no pictures in that. It's not interesting." And you just wait and see. <laughs> so it's actually basically because of the how big a taboo it is now part of the world.
0: Yes, it is a taboo. And that also makes it as fascinating as it is. What I'm wondering is when you talk to people for the first time, not even the people or the families you're going to photograph, because I'm going to ask you that next. But I mean, are you getting questioned? Why? Why are you like uh, uh, diving into this? Because a lot of times what people like to look at when you're actually the person doing it, they kind of raise an eyebrow and are like, uh, really? (laughs) <laughs> True. Okay.
1: Well, the thing is, I, 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 yeah, I just tell it as it is. When I meet the people I need to to um, to work with, uh, I always work with a local guide or a local translator. Uh, I, I I tell them, hey, this is uh, what I'm doing, and I show them some photos, and they are just most of the time they they think it's a bit weird. I would say uh, they say, oh, but but on the other hand, you can say in their part, and many. Of the places I've been to it's not a taboo of course it's an inti- intimate situation but it's not a taboo so death so so but if you look at it with our eyes and with our way of of perceiving death it, 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 we would think it was really really strange to, uh, to 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 go out in the world and to to try to photograph this but for them it's basically uh, they think it's uh, they think it's great that I'm interested in their rituals. On the other hand, it takes me all, it always takes me like a week or two before my translator or fixer understands how serious I am about this. That is not, it's not for fun. It's really, really serious work. And then after a week, mostly they, they start, wow, this guy, he, he knows what he's doing. And then they start to really understand, understand it and work in that way.
0: So you get them, you get them in on your plans, and how do you then get the families in? Is there cases where it's easier or more difficult? How do you approach a grief, like a, a, a sad family, and say, "Let me come in and and document your moment of sadness"?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe I have my own way. It works. I I, I go with the translator, uh, and and I, I say, "Hey, you have to find out if there's anybody in this place who's dying, or close to dying." Or if there's anybody who recently died, but the thing is, I have to be there as soon as possible after death because there's a, always some rituals right after a person has died, and that's the different, difficult part of this. I, the th- way I approach the families, I go there with a translator. Of course, you have to be very—it's um, a very sensitive moment—but uh, I, I can only say it has been working out for me. All the places I've been going, I haven't got—I haven't been rejected one time right yeah so maybe it's just the way I am I don't know but it, it works for me and one thing more I do when I'm out there one of the first things I do when I meet the family I'm always carrying my camera visible I have it on me and it's ready to shoot and I always even on in the first conversation I'm always taking a few pictures to let them know I'm a photographer that's why I'm here
0: that's a really good strategy. I, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of street photographers and oftentimes uh, they are uh, afraid to show that they're taking pictures. Now, we cannot compare that one-to-one, but I, I, I think as a photographer, you have to be very, very clear about your intentions from the beginning. There can be no misunderstandings, especially in a situation like this. Yes.
1: I've been doing a lot of street photography as well in the old days. And I mean, it's the way you approach people i mean when I, when i when I, I never ask people if i can take a f- picture never ever i take the picture and then i ask them afterwards if i have to ask them but you can do a lot with a smile i mean you can take the shot look over the camera smile and say hey 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 i'm not dangerous you know
0: yes which is the, the biggest worry people have is that you're some kind of a creep
1: exactly yeah exactly that's the biggest worry people have so 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 that's what i'm doing i, I mean play with it and and as long as you're not doing anything um, hidden or a hidden camera or whatever or trying to, to do something bad to people. I mean, laugh at them, laugh with them. And, and, and show them that you're not a dangerous person. You're just the photographer who saw a good picture.
0: Fully agreed. Now, in, in the funeral situations, are you becoming an, an accomplice? Or are you, or, or you rather just accepted to be around? Like, how deep is the connection with, with the families you get?
1: It's uh, up and down. It's a little different. But mostly, I'm there for the whole process, and which can last for many days. So, so mostly, they, they, they accept me as someone who is doing what he's doing there. Uh, i mean uh, i don't know how but in, in i think I, i'm able to to make myself invisible uh, and that's a strategy i use <laughs> mm-hmm. so so i i go very very close and i've decided that i i this from the point of the fam from the, from the family's point of view so, which means i'm going i'm i'm standing where they're standing uh and i'm just as close as you might have seen on my photos it's 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 a it's from the family's point of view and they they when i'm accepted i start taking pictures and uh, i think it's uh, a way of working i, I mean I'm, I'm so much into what i'm doing so uh, i just start I, I just do it i mean i'm if you ask me, if I go to a family where they have a funeral ceremony and i'm there they will say oh that's the photographer Definitely. That's what they will say, because that's the way I behave and act. But sometimes it's like I was sitting with a Danish guy here in Denmark for like one month before he died. And I got very, very close to the family and to the guy as well. It was a bit tough, I would say, uh, but, but also very interesting. The other people who have died, I haven't known them. So I've, I've always come there after they died.
0: How heavy is this project on you personally, when you actually do get a connection? Do you take something home? And how do you deal with that? <sighs>
1: No, I, I'm not. I, I, it's not like I get scared of death or anything like that. But uh, I, I had a spirit with me home from Haiti that gave me a lot of nightmares, like heavy nightmares. I, I, I photographed this, uh, voodoo spirit being taken out of a death, dead person's uh, body, and they gave me that spirit uh, with me back home, and uh, I got some really, really, really heavy nightmares. Uh, after that (laughs) and then i took the spirit and put it outside and everything was gone
0: how do you do that i mean you literally took home and and i'm totally open to that kind of subject i think especially when you deal with death and and loss you have to be How, how did you like what happened exactly like how did you get rid of it how did you realize it
1: well, it was this uh, very special thing. Uh, at this, uh, this was It was this voodoo priest who were going to perform this very special ritual. And, uh, and he said, I know why you're here, he told me. I said, I know too. I'm a photographer. I'm going to document this ritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell me you're a photographer. I don't believe you. I know you are a white voodoo priest and you are here because you want to pick up a voodoo spirit to bring back to Europe because you cannot get those voodoo spirits in Europe, he told me yeah okay he said but i'm gonna i'm gonna take a lot of pictures yeah yeah it's okay you can take all the pictures you want but i know why you're here okay (laughs) so (laughs) i went to the ceremony and after that he took out i saw the spirit being taken out of the dead person and they put it into a it's a a calabash which is like a dried up fruit and uh, they put the spirit in there with hairs uh, hair and nails from the dead person and he gave it to me, and I took it with me home, and I put it in my my bedroom, and then I started having these uh, nightmares, dreaming I was attacked attacked by black voodoo. There's there's two uh, how do you say two ways in, in in the voodoo in Haiti, and one of them is the very dark voodoo called Bizango, and that was I, I have no access to that as a white white person, but this part of the voodoo was what attacked me this very dark matter attacked me in my dream and it ended up i was i woke up while i was screaming and uh, uh, sitting up in my bed and screaming i am voodoo i am voodoo oh, and then i go. woke up and i was soaked in sweat you know so and i took the spirit and put it outside the
0: bedroom and it was gone so it's still in your house but it's outside yeah. of the bedroom
1: yeah, it's still yeah, it's outside of the bedroom now. No, I, actually, it's back now in my new apartment.
0: <laughs> okay, but and you and you live in peace with each other.
1: Yes, yes, because basically, a, a voodoo spirit is something you use for asking for like a good health or a, a, a great harv- harvest or, or you know things like that. That's the basic
0: use of the voodoo spirit. Then you have the dark voodoo which is different you use them in a different way as we talk about the rituals like it the whole things you've seen all over the planet like after eight years what's your perception of how people deal with death and how different are we in doing this if anybody knows at that point of time it must be you
1: yeah well basically i think you can say one thing the rituals are so different from place to place it's a great variety of uh, saying goodbye to your loved ones and it's so interesting. Some places it, it takes like two times three days of rituals. Other places it's in Ghana, it's called the celebration of life. And it takes uh, a day and a half. Uh, in Denmark, it takes two and a half hours. I mean, half an hour in church and two hours of coffee and cake and then bye-bye. Uh, so there's so many different ways of doing it. In, in Indonesia, they they take out the dead people and they they celebrate them. I mean, and they do the same in Madagascar. There's so many different ways of treating people. Uh, that uh, that to do the rituals and how we treat our that people but one thing that is like in common with all these from all these places i've been is that people believe in an afterlife there is something when we die something is going to happen basically from old times the belief is that the uh, when you die you actually end up in a place that is quite similar to the place of the living so the 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 land of the dead is actually very similar to the land of the living. That's an old belief that you can see in all these places I've been that there is some kind of an afterlife. And that also, that's maybe why it's not such a big taboo as it is here. Because in, in, in my culture, we believe that when someone dies, it's, it's the end. There's nothing after that. But there's no evidence that there's nothing after that. There's no evidence that there is something after that, and there's no evidence that there is not something after that, after you die. The the belief that everything is ending when we die, that's like a modern belief, if you look at it, actually. It's not something traditional, old way of seeing things. It's a very new way of uh, perceiving death.
0: Yeah, it's probably also—I I don't know—you might have to verify that, but it's probably also a very uh, first-world thing to kind of administrate death and kind of get get rid of the process, as we probably don't like to 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 stay with it. What I find fascinating, there seem the, the cultures who kind of celebrate this for a day or two, and uh, I wanted to ask you. Then it's also more of a loving. Goodbye, accompanying kind of a, an approach than just like, okay, as you said in Denmark, uh, half an hour in the church uh, and half an hour in the graveyard, and there you go. Definitely, definitely. It takes, yeah, I mean, you have all the time for,
1: for, for, for crying. You even hire people some places to get, I mean, to cry for you, you know, to show the sadness. Somebody's taking care of that. Uh, in, in Ghana, you also you suddenly you start dancing uh, during the ceremony. It's a celebration of life. It's called. So it's both. In many places, it's a celebration and combined with this. Of course, there's a lot of sadness and and, and stuff as well. In the, F- the Philippines, they told me when we're having a, they had the last party for the dead. She was she had been lying for three days in the room. Then they took her out. They played some music. They were singing and they told me now we're having this party down here at the same time in the land of the dead or what we can call what we should call it they have a party as well to welcome this dead soul coming up there the dead person so it's uh yeah most places death is like a transition from one state to another state where where it's and and to get back to that thing about the the the, our modern world i think the, the 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 thinking that Death is the end of everything. Has come up with the, with the modern science, I think, because we cannot prove that something is happening afterwards.
0: I fully agree. I mean, nobody ever came back came back to tell us. Uh, exactly. Exactly. But after all, all the funerals you've seen, as we're already like talking about death, and it's only on not you cannot avoid it. Uh, which one of those rituals you've seen would you like to have for your own passing on to wherever you go? <laughs> I would
1: like to have a part of every, all the rituals I've photographed. One, a, a small part of it, all of them. No, I, Basically, I want to, it to be a big celebration when I die. When it's my funeral, make a party, go crazy, get drunk smoke whatever you like to smoke i mean <laughs> go ahead
0: <laughs> and play good music and play good music and dance yeah it's it's a celebration yeah. of life at yeah. the end of the day yeah exactly that's how i want it to be what was your biggest challenge in regards to like from a photographer's point of view like in the execution of photography like regarding how you move what you use what was your biggest challenge in in the project
1: uh, that was the size of the cameras. I mean, equipment. Uh, I've been working with many different cameras uh, on this project, uh, and now I ended uh, up with Fuji. I decided to some years ago to, to 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 work with Fuji. But it's the size because sometimes I have to actually move around in the mountains following a a, um, a funeral in the mountains. I have to move around with all my stuff on my back. I need small cameras. I don't want to be intimidating too much. So I need small cameras. I need cameras that doesn't make a lot of noise. So this project is absolutely not doable with a big DSLR camera, not at all, because you will disturb everything too much.
0: Do you use the electronic shutter a lot in those situations? Sometimes I do, depending on the light uh, uh, and
1: if there's too much movement because of the rolling shutter. I I, but I prefer to use the mechanical shutter, but the 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 XH one it doesn't make any sound at all. Almost, I mean, even though it's a mechanical shutter, so I have no problems using that or the XT two. I mean, it's still so quiet. Uh, but I, I I use the electronic shutter sometimes.
0: What's your what's your current setup when you go to those travels? Because I saw your, your movie you did with, uh, with Paul Schultz, an amazing 12 minute movie about your journey in in Nepal with the Xh1 and I see you carry a, a very small bag. like what is your working setup when you do these kind of things?
1: Well I, I bring uh, now with the XH1 I bring an XH1 and I bring an XT2 and I bring depending on where I'm going four to five primes. I don't bring any zooms at all. Uh, only if i'm going sometimes with the video but uh, that's coming up so four or five primes let's say the 14 the 16 the 23 the 35 and the 50 and then i have the two houses the x h1 and the x t2 but uh, basically when i'm out there working i work with the x h1 now and uh, that's i have it on my shoulder and then in my back i have the maximum three uh, lenses maybe only two extra lenses and then the rest is back at the hotel
0: and how many batteries you bring along 10 at least yeah i, 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 yeah, I fully yeah. agree on that <laughs>
1: <laughs> i need because the places i go sometimes i need to be able to work for like three days without changing with without, without the being able to charge my batteries so so i always have at least 10 i think the last trip i had like 15 or something like that because i didn't know what was going to happen and i knew that the power supply was really bad sometimes so yeah at least 10 batteries yeah. but it's okay you get used to it it's not a problem i think
0: no not at all i mean in, in return mm-hmm. they are quite smaller and uh, yeah. you know, easy to carry exactly and then
1: uh, yeah that's my basic setup i i never work uh, in a f- you sometimes i have i work with two cameras at the same time if i know it's really dusty and if i know it's a big hassle or uh, or things move really fast i maybe i I, I work with two cameras Uh, basically my main point is to be as uh, as not to look as a photographer i mean if if you get my point I'm there I'm participating and I'm taking my pictures but my camera should not be the thing that people they see uh, all the time you know it is covering my whole face or whatever you know with a big DSLR so
0: yeah I absolutely agree and uh, the camera should never be in between you and what you're currently doing the less it actually takes attention the better it does its job exactly Exactly. Do you have any like settings uh, uh, you could share that make your life easy? Or how how do you how do you work? Are you on fully manual? or you on aperture priority? What's what's your way to go?
1: No, I basically work on, on fully manual uh, all the time. But I have a little interesting thing I found out with the XH1 and the Eterna setting. Because very often you can if you work in like a bright sunlight, uh, which sometimes the rituals are going uh, are taking place in, in bright sunlight. Then I I put the film simulation, uh, even though I'm shooting raw, I put it on uh, Eterna. Eterna, how do you say in English? Eterna, Eterna. I think is right. Yeah, and uh, because that's what you see, then you can, in in your viewfinder, uh, the electronic viewfinder, you actually see, it will show the Eterna profile, so you have a full control of what is happening in your dark areas.
0: I found that to always be the most fascinating part about mirrorless cameras, and which is also probably the biggest advantage over any DSLR, is you can immediately see and work with the light. I believe that this gives you so much more creative options as a photographer.
1: Definitely. I work so much faster, I compose my pictures so much better. For me, it's like uh, I would actually prefer that I could just blink my eye and I would take a picture, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so, but I, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to these cameras that maybe will, they might come in the future with uh, no autofocus. You can put the focus afterwards in the computer. I mean, the lesser things you have to think about, the easier it gets. And photography is about the spontaneity, you know. The spontaneity and intuition for me i mean you have to be able to react as fast as possible without anything uh, disturbing that uh, rea- uh, uh, how do you say that reaction or oh, oh, now there's a picture take it i mean oh no but i have to set this first and i have to make sure and then i have to look at the screen if it's well uh, lit and i have to take the picture again but then the picture is gone with this with the electronic viewfinders and the mirror- mirrorless cameras you know what you have. I rarely look at my screen on the back because it's not necessary.
0: Well, you see it immediately. I, could, I couldn't even imagine like, you know, if any like situations in a documentary, when you do documentary work to take a shot, uh, as you said, check back and then take it again. It's just not going to be there anymore. No, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so then people say, oh yeah, but I'm checking if it's sharp.
1: Okay, if it's not sharp, what are you going to do about it?
0: Let me get your point or take on that. I'm a strong believer that a good picture uh, doesn't have to be necessarily sharp. It's nice when it is, but the content is king.
1: Exactly. I agree totally completely,
0: there's incredibly impressive pictures, which are way away from any good exposure or being sharp, and yet they are incredibly impressive. So that cannot be the determining factor at the end. Yeah, look at Paulo Pellegrin. (laughs) But what an um, amazing stuff
1: is done, but a lot of it is not sharp, or it's really not well lit or anything like that. But it's there.
0: Fully agree. I always use the example of Robert Capa's D-Day pictures where they're oh, yeah, all yeah, really yeah. bad, shaky, under, yeah. overexposed. I give you the same camera, that contacts, you're not going to take the same pictures. Even if they were sharp, they would not be determining for them to be some of the most important pictures. So it's somewhere else. Mm, exactly. Speaking of gear, uh, how much do you have at home? Are you a gear hoarder or you're very pragmatic?
1: You want to uh, have it from the top? <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, I have an uh, XH1, I have an X100S, uh, I have a, an XT2, I have an XH1. I have a lot of lenses. I, I mean, for my professional work, I sometimes use the zoom. So I have a, what is it called, the 16 to 55 2.8. I have the 50 to 140 2.8. And I have the primes the 14, 16, 1.4, 23, 2.0, 23. uh i have the 35 1.4 and the 35 2.0 50 millimeter 2.0 i have the 90 millimeter uh 2.0 as well
0: (laughs) (laughs) but you have about 20 20 lenses more than i have at home I, i assume but that was only the fuji gear oh okay what else is there uh, well, now I just I
1: just three months ago sold my Leica gear because I, I had to hire a, a film photographer to for for a trip uh, on the death project. And that was like an M two forty and an M six and uh, five lenses. And then I have three Nikon cameras. It's just because I haven't sold them. I don't use them any longer. Uh, I have D seven hundred, D seven fifty, D three, and the zooms twenty four seventy. 70 to 200 and flash equipment as well and then i have the canon is yes, 1d x what is it called 1d x mark one with a 2470 and flash system so yeah
0: <laughs> so if, if anybody out there is looking for nikon or canon gear don't hesitate to contact klaus Bo. exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> no the nikon i don't use any longer but i need for some specific uh, tasks i i need the the canon uh, there's a few things that I, I, I have to use it for. What is that? Uh, if I do royal stuff with the with the queen or, or the crown princess or, or crown prince and crown prisoner, princess of Denmark, they move very fast very often. So basically, I I have to use my my cannon gear for that, and also because of the like the the flash system for Fuji doesn't work in in in, in the situations. Uh,
0: the way it should. So, if you had a, a wish free to 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 the Fuji Film uh, Corporation, you would wish them to step up to that level.
1: I would wish, uh, yeah, to for them to develop the flash system so it works. That's uh, because then I could swap all my DSLRs and only work with Fuji.
0: So, if Fuji Film is listening, the only thing that's holding uh, Klaus back is is a good flash <laughs> system, and all these other things will actually probably disappear from your shelf. Definitely. They would. As as we close into the end of the podcast, Klaus, let me just ask you the Dead and Alive project. You are what is it going to be? What are you going to do with it? Uh, where are we going to see it? How can we how can we dive into your journey of the last eight years?
1: Well, I'm still I'm working on my homepage, which is on deadandaliveproject.com. It's not done yet. Uh, I have had a lot of other work and other stuff to do, so I'm working on it. And in a few uh, weeks or a months' time, it would be up and
0: fully running and you're gonna and you're gonna publish a book about it i heard
1: yeah i'm gonna uh, there will be a book in 2019 i just signed the contract uh, with the publisher so it's uh, very interesting to see what we can get out of my stuff and then i'm working on a film project with it as well i just recently went to indonesia and i hired a film photographer so we've done some stuff on that and we have uh, meetings set up with production companies now and then, of course, uh, um, any any place out there in the world, if you, if you want an exhibition, please let me know.
0: <laughs> Good. And if you want to buy the Canon or the Nikon as well, we can combine that yeah. together in the worst case. Definitely. <laughs> Great. So we're looking out for that book. I definitely want to have a copy of that. Um, i will let you know on a, on a final note if anybody want to become a documentary photographer and develop the same kind of passion you have towards those subjects and be as driven as you are what would you give them as a tip
1: uh, i could say believe in what you're doing believe in yourself and remember it's it, it takes time but it's actually worth the time when you have the good pictures back home it's not something something you just go and do be be passionate about it. And, uh, and a lot of people would have a lot of opinions about your images, but you have to find your own core. And, and believe in that because out of that will grow your, how do you say your personal take on this stuff?
0: Yes, and you also probably have to invest a lot of as you just told us uh, during the podcast, a lot of your personal life and believe in your 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 projects.
1: It depends on how you do it, because you can also do a lot of projects in your own backyard. I mean, you have everything outside of your door. It's just the eyes that see it. I mean, I know a lot of photographers who only work here in Denmark. They never go out and they do nice projects here. So it's it's there. It's just about to find it, you know.
0: What would you recommend people to find good subjects to, to work on? Read the news.
1: <laughs> Follow the uh, flow of uh, news and, and, and what's happening in, in, the, uh, yeah, in the world. I mean that's how you, you you find a subject that is uh, actually could be interesting to work on in old days i was i was going out for, to to do this conflict photography or after the conflicts like the aftermath of different conflicts well, it was very easy just you can just look at the newspapers or watch the news on the television and okay or watch cnn and say okay i'm going there now and then you just left
0: and uh Bought, bought a plane ticket and just touched down and and kind of took in the situation exactly exactly i mean uh, i'm 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 highly admire your uh, energy your passion and your engagement you put in those things i I believe that this is something we should all do with our cameras so you have my biggest respect for your method of working thank you very much jens thank you so much uh, do you have any last words for the fuji love community
1: um <laughs> uh, I, no <laughs> thank you for listening I could say and uh, I hope you find my project interesting because if there's one thing and one way we're all going it's, uh, it's
0: uh, to the end <laughs> <laughs> an eternal truth, everything comes to an end, so does this podcast. Check out Klaus Bow, deadandaliveproject.com, as well as his profile on the ex photographers homepage. You have a lens culture profile too. You will find Klaus. Check out his work, it's absolutely worth it. Klaus, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, Klaus, where can we find you on social media?
1: Well, of course, I am on Instagram and Dead and Alive Project. I also have my own personal profile there, Klaus underscore Bow. And then you can find me on Facebook, where I have a dedicated page for, for my project. It's also Dead and Alive uh, project. And uh, then I'm starting to work on building YouTube and stuff like that, that will be coming up. But Instagram, definitely, if you want to see a huge
0: selection of my images from the project. Is there any bigger projects that come up uh, in, in in the next months or year that you want to let us know about ahead?
1: Uh, not uh, apart from the book and and the film thing I'm working on. I I don't know what's going to happen.
0: <laughs> well, we will figure it out and we will see it. Klaus, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast.
1: Thank you to Jens.